2 Timothy, again, one more time, 2 Timothy 3. We're going to start here, but we're going to look at a number of <clears throat> scriptures. And we're continuing uh, to look at what the scripture, some, some topics related to what the scripture says about the scripture. All right? So in uh, 2 Timothy, as we've seen, uh, Paul is exhorting Timothy to preach the word. This is Paul's final letter, um, kind of handing things off to Timothy and highlighting the importance of preaching the word. And he, and he says this about the word. He says, um, verse uh, 14 of chapter 3, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God, the Christian, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So uh, Paul tells us here that the scripture is able to lead one to salvation, which is in Jesus Christ. And of course, once the, that individual comes to Christ, then, then the scripture is able to um, uh, instruct them, inform them, educate them, to correct them, whether that's correction of their thinking or correction in their lifestyle. It's able to um, uh, train them in righteousness. And the result of the, the ministry of the word is that the Christian be complete. The word could be translated whole, could be translated mature, which then he says means that one is prepared for every good work to, to serve and to minister in, in, in all sorts of ways. So the, the word has many, many, many benefits. Amen. And as we saw in the scriptures we read today, the word is, enlightens our eyes, it, uh, the word rejoices the heart, the word gives wisdom, the word revives, the word gives strength, the word uh, provides all sorts of benefits to the believer. Um, however, it's not an automatic thing. It's not magical, if you will. Because what you see all throughout Scripture is that the word profits some people and then it does not profit others. And this is particularly striking in the ministry of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, Jesus will go somewhere and he'll preach and it says, some believed and some didn't. He goes somewhere else, he preaches and says, they were divided or, or they plotted to kill him, but then some believed. So there's this constant division between those who are believing and not believing uh, so so the, it's not as if the word in itself just magically produces the results. In some cases, you see good results. In other cases, you don't see any results or maybe even bad results. So uh, how do we account for this? Well, we, we, we see here, if we go to, to Luke, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Jesus addresses this in the parable of the sower. We won't read the whole thing because the parable and the interpretation are long. Let's just read the, the explanation of the 
the parable, sorry, in Luke 8, verse 11, he says this. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are those who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, but in time of temptation or trial fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. No one, when he's lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. Now, I believe it's in Matthew, or maybe it's in Mark, uh, uh, the gospel writer comments, or, or Jesus comments after explaining the parable. He says, I, it's, I think it's the, the version of Mark. He says, he says, if you don't understand this parable, you can't understand any of the parables. And for years I was like, huh? Why is this one so important? Because there's a fundamental principle to be learned from the parable, which explains everything. And the principle is this, is that the value or the benefit of the word to the individual soul depends on the disposition of the soul. That's the point of the different soils, right? The sower is the same. The seed is the same. The fruit is different. Why? Different soils. In other words, what Jesus is saying, if we're to receive the word, not just the parables, but any of God's word, if we're to benefit and profit from God's word, the condition of our soul influences the, our ability to profit from the word. That's why he says, he that has will be given more. He that has not, what he has will be taken away. He that has, meaning he that comes to the word with the right attitude, the right disposition, he will receive more from the word. Right? But he that doesn't come with the right attitude doesn't receive at all. Matter of fact, the word has a way of making us either better or bitter, <laughs> holier or harder. There really is no neutrality. So in order to bear fruit from the word, we have to cultivate what Luke calls a noble heart. Now the word here in Greek is kalos. There's two words, kalos and agathos. And they're both translated, can be translated good, beautiful, noble. Um, it's kind of a general word for goodness. We need to cultivate a noble heart. Um, in other words, we need certain, a certain attitude or certain dispositions toward the word if we're going to profit 
from reading and hearing the word. These are conditions that make the soil good so that, so that the, the seed grows in our, in our hearts. Now, I live in O'Fallon, and anybody who lives in O'Fallon probably knows how terrible the soil is around here, right? It's, it's just a stick clay, and um, you, it's, I mean, it's really hard to grow anything because the soil's so bad. Um, it's not that the seed's bad, but the soil's bad. And so the word of God is compared to seed, right? And the seed's good. And the seed grows in some hearts and it doesn't grow in other hearts. Why? Because of the condition of the soil or the soul. So what kind of, what kind of attitude do we need to have? What kind of disposition do we need to bring to the word in order to profit when we read it or when we hear it? Well, let me just mention a few things this morning. One is we need to come to the word with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.8, if you want to turn there with me. We'll start in 7, excuse me. Proverbs 1.7. It says, the fear or the reverence of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or, or uh, it could be translated, the reverence of the Lord is the foundation, the foundation of knowledge. And so scripture puts this first, reverence for the Lord. Reverence, of course, includes the idea of faith. The idea of faith. We learn in Scripture that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Can I say that again? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We are told in Hebrews that the Israelites had the word of God preached to them, just as it is preached to us. He says they even had the gospel preached to them, but it did not benefit them. Why? Because it was not mixed with faith. The word without faith is unprofitable. So we, we must understand that when we, when we hear the word and read the word, that we are, we are to trust the word because of the author of the word. Right? Now, sometimes Catholics criticize Protestants for bibliolatry. It's worshiping the Bible, right? We don't worship the Bible. We worship the author of the Bible, right? But the reason we have such a high esteem of the Bible is because we have a high esteem of God. But we have a high esteem of God because what the Bible tells us about God. It really is a circle. If we reverence God, we reverence his word. And if we reverence his word, we reverence God. We have to remember that the scriptures are God's words, not the word of man. So we learn to reverence his word as we would his very person. Indeed, so high is God's word in God's estimation that he says this. The psalmist says this, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you've magnified your word above all your name. Because it is in and through the word 
that we come to understand the name. We understand and learn of the name. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. Amen? When Scripture promises, God promises. When Scripture warns, God warns. And so because we know it is God's word, we know it's true. Why? Because God cannot lie. We know his word is right because he cannot err. We know it is pure because he cannot sin. We know it is sure because he cannot change. Amen? Amen. As we read the word, we must remind ourselves of whose word we are reading or hearing. And it's God's word, not man's word. Now, we may not like what we read or hear, but it's God's word, not man's word. Secondly, we need to appreciate the word of God. Appreciate the word of God. I think we really could, could uh, understand what it would li- be like to live in a totally, completely pagan environment. We would learn to appreciate God's word. Because even, I mean, I remember when I was lost, groping in the dark, I still had the, the benefit of the fact that the word of God has shaped our society in so many ways. Even in that darkness. But to imagine a, a, a culture where there is no remnant of divine revelation other than natural revelation. Very dark indeed. And that's what Paul is describing in Romans 1 and other texts. How dark a, a society can be without the light of God's word. So we need to appreciate And rejoice in the fact that God has given us his word. And not take it for granted. Amen? Jesus says in Matthew, when he's he's given the parable of sower, he says says this. When they ask him, why are you you preaching? Okay, let's go to it. I could quote it, but I want you to see it. Look at Matthew 13. In Matthew 13... In verses 3 through 9, 3 through 8, he gives, he gives the, the parable. And then he says in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then in verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Now, if you follow the, the chronology of Jesus' life in the Gospels, what you find is that he, he was speaking openly. And that at one point in his ministry, he began to change the way he was teaching to the crowds. Regarding his disciples, he began, he began to speak more openly about his death and resurrection. But regarding the crowds, he began to speak more in parables. Why? Because they were rejecting the light they were getting. You see? So he says, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said this. Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them, it has not been given. The knowledge of the word of God is a divine gift. A divine gift. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get frustrated with people, some people that aren't Christians. Ever get frustrated with an unbeliever? It's like, dude, what's the problem? How can you think that way? How can you be that way? 
Well, they haven't received the gift. And sometimes we, we get to this place in our Christian life where things become so obvious to us that it ought to be obvious to everybody, right? Not realizing that whatever light that we have is not due to our great intellect. It's not even due to our study, even though maybe you study or meditation, because those things by themselves aren't sufficient. We need to appreciate the word, but appreciate the fact that God grants us the knowledge of his word, and it is a gift, a gift for which we should be very grateful. Amen? Thirdly, we need to be sincere in our approach to the word. Sincere. That is to say, not to have a a divided mind, a divided heart, but a heart united in the love and the reverence of God. We could call this simplicity of heart, if you will. In 2 Corinthians 11, if you'd like to turn there with me, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is expressing his concern for the Corinthians. And he says, um, in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 11, 1, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Or as some texts may read, from the purity or from simple devotion to Christ. All of these are, are good translations. So simplicity, sincerity, as it says in James 1, not being double-minded, okay? So when we come to the Word to read or when we, come, or when we come to hear the preaching of the Word, it means a willingness to hear the Word as it is, okay? Hear it as it is, not coming to the Word with our agenda, if you will, not attempting to serve two masters, which Jesus said it's impossible, right? You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God, matter of fact, in anything. It's, you serve God and he's got to be first, right? Jesus said if the, we attempt to serve God and mammon, then the light that is in us is darkness. And how great is that light? I mean, how great is that darkness? If our light is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's bad enough if we're in the dark. It's worse if we think our darkness is light, right? That is the ultimate deception. So we come to the word with a simple heart, a sincere heart, a pure heart. Now, pure, a pure heart doesn't mean a heart that is perfect, because none of us are perfect, right? But it means the willingness to hear the word as it is, read it and receive it as it is, um, not hear it and read it with, you know, I'm going to avoid that book because I know it will convict me. I'm not going to read that chapter because I know what it says about this and I'm in sin in that area. No, it means a transparent heart before God. Jesus said that it's the pure in heart that will see God. And for many years I read that and it sounded like he, legalistic. Like he's saying, you have to be really good and then you can see God. 
But that, it's, not, it's not a moralistic statement, or, or should I say, it's not a legalistic statement saying, if you're this good, you get to see God or commune with God. But what he's really saying is another way of saying uh, what we're uh, attempting to understand today is that the condition of your heart affects your ability to see God, right? Your ability to see God. So, you know, if you have a mirror, the, the point of the mirror is that you get a nice clear reflection and you can see your, see your image. But, but if the mirror's all, you know, cloudy, you ever jump out of the shower and look in the mirror like, huh, I can't see anything, right? It's fogged up. The mirror doesn't do any good, right? So if our souls are all fogged up, if our souls are all cloudy, if we're, you know, involved in sin, if we're, you know, not renewing our, you know, there's a lot of things that fog up the soul. Then he's saying if you've got a fogged up soul, you will not see God. Not because you're being punished. You can't. You simply can't. He's just stating the reality of the, of the conditions necessary. If you, if you smear mud all over the window of your house, you're not going to be able to look out the window. It's common sense, right? Common sense. So we come with a pure heart in the sense that we're sincere and we're simple. Doesn't mean we're perfect. But it means we're not double-minded. It was Moody that said either the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. Meaning sin that you're holding on to. Sin that you're putting before God. Those sins have to be repented of. Those sins have to be surrendered to God. Or they will hinder our ability to profit and grow from the word of God. Fourth attitude is humility. And these, of course, all kind of, all kind of tie together. Go to James 1, if you will. In James 1, James says this in uh, chapter 1. He says in verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures, brought us forth. He birthed us. That's what the word literally means. He gave birth to us through the word of God. It's the new birth, being born again, right? So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath or anger. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive with meekness. Look at chapter 4 of James. He says in chapter 4, verse 5, Or do you think that the scripture speaks in vain? The spirit who dwells in us yearns, uh, some virgins say, 
to jealousy or jealously. Better translation would be envy, because he's talking about the fact that they're fighting and envying one another. Notice verse 6, but he gives more grace. Even though by nature we may be bent toward envy and bent toward conflict or strife, that may be our nature. He says, but God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to who? Let's say it one more time. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Are there any footnotes? Any exceptions? You sure? You might want to study it this week. Let's find out. Maybe there's a loophole. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, and he gives grace to no one else. Only the humble. Humility and meekness speak to the willingness to submit to God's word, to do his will and not our own will. And without this humility, there will be no growth from the word because God withholds his grace from the proud. Now, it doesn't mean God doesn't work in your life. God doesn't convict you. God doesn't try to bring you to that place of submission. Oh, he does because he's a faithful father and a loving shepherd. Amen? And he will work in your life to bring you to the end of your rope so that you finally bow the knee and say, yes, Lord, you are Lord. But that's not maturity. That's just the beginning of growth. That's the beginning of growth. Receiving the word in meekness and humility means that we allow the word to show us our sin. We allow the word to direct our path. We allow the word to communicate to us the word of our Lord and not just our friend. Both James and Peter tell us to lay aside sin so that we can receive and desire the word of God. And clearly this is one of the problems in the Christian life when uh, we are not willing to lay aside various sins. These sins may be uh, simply attitudes. As a matter of fact, all sin ultimately is rooted in one fundamental attitude, and that is the attitude of pride. And we don't want to look at ourselves as we are in the mirror of God's word. But the noble heart, the heart that receives and keeps and grows, the noble heart welcomes the word and embraces the word. All of the word. Amen? All of the word. Even when that word may be a word of conviction or reproof. David says the reproof of the righteous is like an oil on his head. In other words, it's a good thing. It's a blessing. It's a blessing that God would show us where we are in error. Because Sin always produces the same result. You know what it is? The wages of sin is death. 
So if we want the fruit of death, we walk in sin. If we want the fruit of life, we walk in the word. Lastly, or not lastly, two more points. One, we, uh, second one is, uh, first one is prayer. We need to have a, an attitude of prayer. What do, there are people that have studied the word of God more than any of us probably ever will, studied the word more than maybe all of us together, and yet they uh, do not believe the word. They don't believe the word. They don't know the Lord. They just study the word because they're scholars. What's the problem? Well, many problems. But what we have to understand is that the word of God needs to be illuminated to the soul because it is a spiritual word, if you will. Jesus said, my words are spirit and my words are life. So we can study the word, but if there's not illumination by the Holy Spirit, we're not truly going to understand it and profit from it. Uh, Tozer said this. Uh, he's got a great, a great um, article. I'm just going to read a little bit to you. Uh, the title of this article is The Need for Divine Illumination. He said, spiritual truths differ from natural truths, both in their constitution and in the manner of their apprehension by us. Natural truths can be learned by us regardless of our moral or spiritual condition. The truths of the natural sciences, for instance, can be grasped by anyone of normal intelligence, regardless of whether he is a good man or a scoundrel. There's no relation between, say, chastity and logic, or between kindness and oceanography. In like manner, a sufficient degree of mental vigor is all that's required to grasp philosophical propositions. A man may study philosophy for a lifetime, teach it, write books about it, and be all the while proud, covetous, and thoroughly dishonest in his private dealings. Amen? Amen. But then he says the same thing may be said of theology. A man need not be godly to learn theology. Indeed, I wonder whether there's anything taught in any seminary on earth that cannot be learned by a brigand or a swindler as well as by a consecrated Christian. While I have no doubt that the majority of theological students live far better than average lives, it should be kept in mind that they can easily get their lessons without living any better than is absolutely required to stay in the institution. Surely God has that to say or something to say to the pure in heart, which he cannot say to the man of sinful life. But what he has to say is not theological. It is spiritual. And right there lies the weight of my argument. Spiritual truths cannot be received in the ordinary way of nature. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. He goes on to say, the sum of what I am saying is that there is an illumination divinely divinely bestowed without which theological truth is information and nothing more. While this illumination is never given apart from theology, it is entirely possible to have theology without illumination. This results in what has been called dead orthodoxy. And while there may be some who deny that, it's, that it is possible to, have, to be both orthodox and dead at the same time, I'm afraid experience proves that it is. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. 
So we need to pray as we hear the word. We need to pray as we read the word for the Holy Spirit who's given to God's people to illuminate the word, that we would understand it, that we would love it, that we would embrace it, and that that through the word, God would be teaching us specifically what he wants us to know. I remember one time I was reading the word when I was a young Christian, and I was just like, I remember feeling totally overwhelmed, like, God, like, how am I going to supposed to learn this, all this stuff in here, you know? And I felt like the Lord reassured me and said, you know, I will teach you what I want you to know when I want you to know it. Just stay in the word. Stay in the word. And so he will teach us what we need to know. God may be teaching you this week about prayer or about patience or about uh, another person he may be teaching about giving, another person about service, another person about witnessing. The Lord deals with his people in a very individual way, amen? He teaches us through his spirit. And so he takes the word and instructs us according to our need at that time. And without that illumination, we don't profit from the word. So we need to pray as David prayed when he said to the Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. As you read Psalm 119, which I would encourage everyone to read this week, over and over David pleads to God, He's saying, your word is great, your word is this, it's right, it's true, it's just, but Lord, instruct me, give me understanding, help me. We need to pray for illumination and we need to pray for communion with God. Remember, the main goal of the word, the prime objective, is the revelation of Jesus Christ, amen? And that Jesus said, knowing him and knowing the Father is eternal life. As David said in Psalm 118, you, O Lord, are my portion. So we seek not just understanding of the word, we seek knowledge of the word giver. Or should we say, we seek knowledge of the incarnate word through the written word. Lastly, we need patience. Those who receive and accept the word bring forth fruit with patience, Luke says, with patience. Growing in the word and growing by the word takes time. It takes time. You don't uh, master the word, or should I say, you are not mastered by the word in a few months, and barely even in a few years. Neither will you experience the depths and the sweetness of Jesus without patient pursuit of him in the word. Growing in the word is really a lifetime pursuit, amen? And so we need to give God time as we hear and as we read his word. You know, um, when I was a young Christian, uh, I remember hearing a lot about you should read your Bible every day. And I think that's a good practice, don't you? But I also realized What I also experienced was what I often didn't read my Bible every day. And it wasn't because I didn't want to, but because my life was so crazy. Or I might read, you know, a verse in the morning, or, you know, maybe I could grab a verse at lunch. But, I mean, what 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 I was experiencing was a frustration in my Christian life because I was reading the Word, but I didn't feel like I was really, really reading the Word. You know what I mean? 
I, I was just kind of really skimming over uh, a gold mine. And I knew I had a gold mine, but I didn't have time to dig down into it. But then I realized that, that uh, this, I, I kind of learned about giving and, and about the Sabbath at the same time because I realized that, that God um, asked for portions of our life. He asked for a tenth of our income, right? That's called a tithe. But then he asked for a seventh of our time, and that's called the Sabbath. Now, when I say that, some are like, oh, no, that's legalistic. Th- th- you're looking at it the wrong way. The Sabbath is one of the coolest things God ever did. If you get your stuff together, no, seriously, a lot, of guys, a lot of guys spend the Sabbath to do all their chores they don't get done on the other six days. But if you really had your stuff together and you got all your stuff done and you had a day of total rest, a, a day where you can say, I don't have to answer the telephone. Nah, nah, nah. I don't have to look at my email today. I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't have to. I'm free. I am a free man today. And I can just read the word. I can pray. I can meditate. I can relax. It's a glorious thing. And what I found in my life, maybe you're different, but in my life, I needed more than 15 minutes a day. I needed... At least once a week, I needed to be able to set aside out several hours where I could just open the Word, I could pray, I could meditate, I could study, but with no other agenda, but, but to learn, to grow, and to commune. And I think we all need that. Matter of fact, that's why I think the point of the Sabbath is. God says, take a big hunk of time and set it aside for me. But it's really for you. It's really for you. That's why it's not legalism. It's a blessing. Now maybe, you know, you know, some of you may work on Sundays, so Sunday's not a good day for you. I, I worked on Sundays forever. <laughs> so I picked a different day. But I basically set aside hours and hours, no interruptions, no other obligations, just to spend time with the Word, prayer, meditation, getting to know the Lord, getting to know the Word. Um, and I realized what I was really doing was practicing the principle of Sabbath. And we all need that. Because growth takes time. You've got to give God time. He'll be patient with you, but you've got to be patient with Him. Right? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is more to be desired than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. We thank you, Lord, that your word is precious to our souls. And I ask, Lord, that we as your people would be a people who desire your word, desire your fellowship, spend time with you in prayer and communion and meditation, spend time at Bible study, life group. We are people who are like the Bereans that were eager to search 
to learn to grow through your word. We ask this, Lord, not just for our benefit, but ultimately, Lord Jesus, for your glory, that the world would see, the world would see how your, your word, your salvation, transforms lives, that you would receive the honor and the glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.